0: Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. We're going to go to the book of Mark. This is what we're traveling through. We're journeying through together this amazing book that was written uh, some 20, 30 years after Jesus ascended back into heaven. It was written to a people and believers in the city of Rome that were struggling uh, through serious, serious persecution, Uh, stuff that prayerfully you and I would never experience Uh, But this is written to give them assurance, to give them uh, affirmation of their faith. This is actually the first time the gospel was written down in paper form. It had always been orally, uh, the gospel, the the news about Jesus. And so now they have something to read around candlelight as they're hiding for their lives to see and to read what the details of Jesus' life through firsthand accounts. The book is actually divided into these four sections that we've been talking through. We've already walked through the preparation of Jesus' ministry. Right now we're in his time and his ministry in Galilee. We're going to move in several, it'll be a while, but to his ministry in Jerusalem. And then finally, his the Passion Week, the week of his arrest and the week of his crucifixion and his resurrection. So today we're actually going to begin a, a mini-series. Inside of this big book of Mark, we're going to begin a mini-series that we're just simply titling uh, uh, Grace Over Rules, Grace Versus Rules, Grace and Rules. And so there's these five episodes that we're going to see starting today over the next five or so weeks where we see this, this tension mounting between Jesus and the established religious culture of the day. And so we're going to see how Jesus trumps religion. How do you handle surprises in your life? Like when things just get dropped in your lap, like what, what is that like for you? Like for me, if it's a good surprise, if it's a good thing, then I obviously handle it really, really well. It's like, yeah, all right. But if it's a tough deal, man, that's That's tough. That's difficult to handle sometimes. A couple weeks ago, we uh, were opening the mail and we got a refund check from, uh, uh, from our escrow account for the house that we still own in Lynchburg that we had overpaid our taxes and our insurance by over $500. And there was this check and we're just like dropped in our lap. It's like, man, God's good. That's good stuff. Uh, just a couple of days before, April and I were actually talking, man, how are we going to have money for Christmas presents, for family and stuff, and then just right there in our lap, bam, there it was, $500 something dollars. I handed it to April and said, there you go. That's how we're going to have money for Christmas. Man, when those kind of things happen, it's like, you know, right on, good stuff. But what about the times when something gets dropped in our laps when we just don't know what to do with it? It's out of the blue. It's, it's, it's confusing, it's difficult, it's frustrating. You guys, most of you know our story, how we went through uh, uh, infertility, we went through miscarriages as, trying to have kids. I remember the time when we went to the doctor's office and the doctor sat us down and he said, listen, not only April are you uh, infertile, but Walt, based on the tests that we've done with you, you, Walt, are infertile, both of us. Try having that thrown in your lap. And is that the same? Is is God the same God that that drops five hundred extra bucks into our lap? Is he still God when these other things get dropped in our laps? Earlier this year, we had news that our one of our sponsoring uh, uh, support for for funds was going to drop six hundred dollars a month to our to my salary. As you know, we're not pulling salary, full salary from Life Journey Church yet. The vast majority of our salaries, mine and Richard, come from supporters outside of the church. And so we get dropped in our lap this, this news that 600 bucks a month is not going to be coming in. Um, and is God still the same God in that, at that moment? Is he still a loving God and a caring God in that moment as he was when he threw the 500 and some odd dollars of of overpayment for our taxes when when, when in that situation then how do you deal with these surprises when things are totally unexpected get dropped in your lap is it the same god is the god that we serve is he only good in the good times or is he still also good in these difficult times. Man just in the short couple of months and weeks that I've gotten to know some of you and some of that that have begun to come to life Journey Church or just people that I've met, had the privilege of meeting here in Crozet, man there has been some serious traumatic difficult things just dropped square in our in your laps. Things like job security. I've met folk who have lost their jobs in the last couple of months and they are faced with right now in their lap, holding this thing of un- inability to pay to 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 to, to uh, support their family that they love and are called to to love, some have been dropped with these crazy diseases. Just just Thursday night, we had the privilege of praying for Jim's daughter, um, who's going through uh, Lyme's disease right now—a terrible case of it. It. What do we do when those things get dropped in our lap? Cancer. We know of our own Kathy Hughes who had a double mastectomy just a couple of weeks ago. What what, do we, what happens when those things get dropped in our lap? It's great when we get the good things dropped in our laps, but what about the tough things? Is God still there? Is there still a purpose in all of this? Or a house that that hasn't been sold from where you move from and every month you get dropped in your lap to uh, mortgage payments to make, Right? And what about those situations? Is God still working in those? We just heard from Phil. When when you have family members uh, that that your your parents and your mother on both sides and and their parents with all this baggage and it gets just dropped into your lap. Is there a plan behind this? When you get served divorce papers and just get dropped right on your desk. Custody battles that aren't going well dropped on your lap. Or how about this? When you become a grandparent which should be an exciting time when you become a grandparent, but yet your child is still a teenager. What about when that gets dropped on your lap? Is God still a God that is good in those circumstances as he is when it's very, very easy, when it's very, very clear? When we get the promotion, it's like, man, God is so good. But when we get the demotion, mm, I'm not so sure about those times. And so this is what I ha- I'm going to go ahead and give you our journey marker right now. Uh, it's not going to be on the screen, but just I'm going to go ahead and just tell it to you. If, if you're new, like what's a journey marker? We just try to boil everything we talk about down to a one simple idea, and this is it. Nothing gets dropped in our laps that is not for our good and for God's glory. Nothing. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look through this first episode where Jesus and the religious crowd get toe-to-toe. And we're going to look at this for five weeks, this grace versus rules. But before we do that, could we just maybe just have a word of prayer, just a time of prayer? Because I don't know what's dropped on your lap right now. But, man, I know God does. I mean, we might have some superficial relationships where we can talk and, like, hey, could you pray for this? And, and sometimes we have really deep conversations where we're able to really pray about really serious things, and that's awesome but I don't know the depth of your heart. You don't know the depth of the things that get dropped on my lap. But God does. Could we just maybe take a, a time here and just pray? Just ask God to teach us. Ask God to work in our hearts this morning. Father, I just uh, I just pray that this morning that you would do a work. That God, that you would reveal to us the reality that All things do work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And God, I just pray that we would be able to see you this morning as this God who is sovereign over all things and has a plan so big and so glorious that it includes us for your glory. God, may we look at the things that get dropped in our lap not as obstacles, not as problems, not as dilemmas, but God, as opportunities for you to be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So let's go ahead and go into Mark chapter 2. And so let's, let's go ahead here to Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And if you're new with us, the way it kind of works, we read a little bit, we talk a little bit, we read a little bit, talk a little bit, and then we uh, pack up and, and go home. So what's happening here in chapter uh, 2, verse 1 the Bible says, Mark writes, And when he, he being Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now, we don't know how many days that Jesus had been away from Capernaum, but last week's message when, uh, when, when Jesus was going from town to town, village to village, and he heals the leper, there was some period of time where he, uh, he was not in Capernaum. He wanted to go to the next town, if you remember that from two weeks ago when we were talking through this. And Jesus has, has gone with his disciples from town to town, from synagogue to synagogue, preaching the glorious news of his beautiful grace. And after healing the leopard last week, the crowds were so thick that Jesus couldn't enter into the various towns anymore. But here Jesus returns to Capernaum, which is kind of the hub of Jesus's ministry in Galilee. And he co- returns to what it just says was at home. And this is probably Peter's home where he pulled his, Peter's mother-in-law off of her deathbed. So we get the idea that Jesus is back in Capernaum, and it doesn't take long. This is the kind of feel we get. It doesn't take long for news to spread that the miracle worker, this guy who is preaching this new message where everybody is in awe and amazement with, he, he's back in town. And so what happens when this news spread? Verse 2 says, And many were gathered together so that there was no more room. Not even at the door. And so this huge crowd is there. And what does Jesus do? With the greatest compassion ever possible. And he was preaching the word to them. So this is a packed house. I mean, literally, it's a packed house. And Mark makes it clear that there are so many people that are gathering there that there's no more room in the house. There's no more room outside. There's there's impossible for more people to get in. So Jesus looks out over this crowd that has gathered, probably wanting him to do more miracles, probably just wanting to see him, you know, do something kind of crazy awesome. And and he looks at it, and, and, and what does he do? He preaches the word to them. He does the same thing here in this house, that he had been doing from town to town. Every time he'd go into a synagogue, he would read from the Old Testament, from Isaiah, from different places in the Old Testament, and he would teach graciously about how this Old Testament truth pointed to him. It pointed to his authority. It pointed to his mission. Now, we don't know if Jesus picks up a scroll in this house right here and, and reads it and like, like what he does normally in a synagogue, but what we do know is that he is preaching the truth of who he is. He is preaching the same message that we talked about in chapter 1 when the people were sitting there just amazed. They're like, this guy has authority. This is a new teaching. This isn't what the scribes taught about. This isn't this thing of of works-based law, religion. This is something completely different. This is something completely new, this thing of grace. And so while he's preaching this, he gets interrupted. And verse verse 3 says, And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men a paralytic is somebody who has some of their limbs paralyzed verse 4 and when they the, the men carrying the paralytic when they could not get near him because of the crowd remember it's it's packed they can't get in the house they couldn't get near Jesus when they realized that verse 4 says they removed the roof above him and then And when they made an opening in the roof, they let down the paralytic on his bed in which he lay. So there's this crazy interruption to Jesus' preaching. He's been interrupted by demons. Remember that from chapter 1? If you're with me, say, oh yeah. He was in chapter 1. He was interrupted by demons when he's preaching. And now he's interrupted by a bunch of caring friends. But here's what I want us to ponder for a minute. Was Jesus really interrupted? I mean, was he really interrupted? Think about it. Was Jesus caught off guard all of a sudden when pieces of straw and dirt start falling in his coffee? He's like, you know, what, what is this? What's happening? Is there an earthquake? Like, was Jesus caught off guard? Okay, if you're a believer, you're going to believe this thing called the omniscience of God, that God knows all things. And so, even if you don't buy into the full, absolute sovereignty of God, that He's in control of all things, at least you could say that He knows all things. And so, Jesus, could Jesus ever be caught off guard to say, man, I didn't see that coming? But I would say that this is not some sort of surprise that, that Jesus didn't expect, but I see scripture teaching that God is a God who not just knows all things, of course he does, but that he's a God that's in control of all things. And Phil's testimony just spoke beautifully to that reality. So catch the scene, okay? Catch the scene. Jesus is preaching the word, the glorious gospel of grace that's found in him and him alone, the fact that man has sinned, and the very nature of God himself is a nature to redeem man, sinful man by means of his gracious love. And, and if you think about it, the only thing that God's redemption of us says about us is that we rebelled against him, Okay? All that his redemptive love towards us and redemption of us says about us is that we have no hope of reconciliation apart from him. That we are not, it doesn't say that we're worthy. His redemption of us doesn't declare that we are worthy, that we are are deserving of his kindness. It just simply says that we rebelled against him. But on the flip side, God's gracious redemption of us says tons about God and his character. It says that his grace is greater than our sin. It says that his love is deeper than our iniquity. God's redemption of you and of me says that his mercy is sweeter than our rebellion. God's redemption of us says that nothing will stand in the way of every single tongue, every single tribe, every single nation declaring the glory of God. So the redemption of us says, says some about us, says that we are in need of him. says that we've rebelled against him. But, man, it says so much about who he is. It's kind of like creation. Last night, Hart and I went outside, and we were staring at the stars. And and, and we can learn a lot from creation, but you know what? As we study creation, we learn a lot about the one who created it. We learn about his character. We learn about his creative ability. We learn about his vastness. And so in that same idea, this scene, Jesus is explaining this beautiful thing, this new teaching on grace, and he's revealing truths about God, things that, that they didn't understand, this grace, this, this love, this mercy, things that were, that were not caught, they weren't understood by the Old Testament Jewish religious person. In fact, their system taught them that God would save the ones who were worthy of being saved. If they could generate some sort of self-righteousness, then God would save those who were worthy of it. And they became worthy, they thought, by wearing certain things, by eating certain foods, by, by doing certain activities, that they could earn God's favor. But Jesus is on the scene, and he's teaching that all of that is meaningless, that salvation comes only through God's gracious work of redemption. So this is what Jesus is teaching. This is what Jesus is, this is, is doing. He's, he's, he's illustrating. He's, he's taking the time to teach the word to them. It's beautiful grace. And all of a sudden, the roof opens up. So is this an interruption? Or is this an opportunity, an illustration, divinely ordered by God for Jesus to prove some stuff about himself? So is this an interruption? Is is this man getting dropped on Jesus' lap? And then Jesus is like, what am I supposed to do with this? I don't know what this is all about. I'm caught off guard. Or was this a beautiful opportunity from God sovereignly laying this man before Jesus for Jesus to illustrate who he is? Yesterday, or Friday night in our membership weekend, Richard was illustrating some stuff, and he's using these bottles to illustrate it. Jesus is teaching in this house and he doesn't need a drink bottle to illustrate. This man is being lowered into his lap for him to use as an illustration. And so what happens in this? Um, What happens is that Jesus, he sees their faith, verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So here is an opportunity for Jesus to illustrate the gracious reason for why he has come, and that is to save sinners. And so he's preaching about grace, he's preaching about mercy, he's preaching about the gospel, and right then, divinely, God drops into his lap a beautiful opportunity, a beautiful illustration for Jesus to declare who he is, to forgive the sins of this paralytic Now, some have made the point that Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic because of the faith of the four friends. And we know that faith of a person over here cannot save someone over here. They must have their own faith. And so that's not what the text is teaching. The text just simply says when he saw their faith, the faith of these five individuals, when he sees their faith, he... um, realizes that the grace of God has flooded into this man's heart. This is a great opportunity, actually, to take a second or two to talk about grace, to talk about how salvation works. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, you want to write this down and read it later. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 says, In him, talking about Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Grace, simply defined, is unmerited favor. That means that God is giving us something that we do not deserve. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve redemption. But because of the riches of God's grace, he has redeemed us and forgiven us. So where does faith come into play? So where, how does faith work in all of this? Faith simply is the conduit through which God's grace floods someone's life. Ephesians 2:8, write this one down. You read read this later. Ephesians 2:8 says, "For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this this grace, this faith, it's not of you. It is the work of God. It is the gift of God. In other words, we're not saved because of our faith, we're saved through our faith. Again, using Richard as a great illustration on Friday night, he was explaining the gospel in our covenant family uh, weekend, and he says, it's kind of like this, if a house is on fire, and I apologize, Richard, for using your illustrations, but a house is on fire, and uh, that house needs water for the fire to be put out, and there's a hydrant uh, full of water pressure out the street. Well, that Water in the hydrant is no good without a hose through which the water to uh, carry to put out the fire. So when the firemen, they put out the fire, they use the fire hose to put out the fire. When the fire is over, I don't think anyone standing there would say or give credit to the fire hose for putting out the fire. They would say, the water put out the fire. But the water is no good without the conduit to which the water travels through that it that same way it is with us the grace of god is this reservoir of water ready to rush in and quench our dying and thirsty souls but there must be the conduit of faith through which his grace travels we're not saved because of our faith we're saved because of his grace but that travels through the conduit of the faith and the beauty of Ephesians 2.8 says, even that faith is God's gift to you. Man, what a gracious God. We can't conjure this up on our by ourselves. He graciously gives us everything that we need to believe. He gives us the grace and he gives us the faith. So faith is required for salvation. It's required for forgiveness, but it is the conduit through which his grace Flows, And so he says, son, I see the faith. I see this conduit. I see this faith in action. Your sins are forgiven. That word literally forgiven literally means put away. That they are sent away. They're gone, never to return. Where did they go? Have you ever thought about that? Where did this paralytic sins go? They go into some sort of holding tank. His sins went the same place that your sins went. Those of you who believe and that is on Jesus himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin and Jesus never sinned so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. So as Jesus hung on the cross, all of the sin of those who would believe was placed on Jesus and Jesus at the cross paid for it. So when God graciously saves you, he gives you this grace and the faith needed to trust in Jesus. You can stand assured just as this paralytic that your sin has been removed, placed on Jesus and removed from your account. Jesus became our sin on the cross. And now through faith his grace. We become his righteousness. That's awesome. That's beautiful. That is grace That is the gospel. But to the religious crowd, uh (laughs) uh-oh, and this is scandalous. This is not beautiful to the religious crowd. This is scandalous. Read verse 6 with me. Now, some of the scribes, okay, the scribes, this is the religious group, the religious uh, uh, representatives in the group here. The scribes were sitting there. And and I'm not really going to comment on that, but isn't it kind of funny that it's a packed house. You get this idea that like, there's no room for chairs. Like It's just packed. But the religious crowd had an opportunity to find a seat. I just think that's kind of unique there. But the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, in their minds, they're thinking this. Why does this man speak like that? Why does he speak like that? He's blaspheming who can forgive sins but God alone. The religious elite, the ones who had put their trust in their own ability to earn God's forgiveness, they considered the preaching of grace, this preaching of, of grace being illustrated right in front of them through this Jesus guy forgiving the sins of this man. They saw this as, a, as scandalous. They began thinking in their hearts, man, this is blasphemous. And blasphemy, in case we're not familiar with that word, it just means this idea of speaking evil against the very nature of God himself. But they ask a very legitimate question. Who can forgive sins except God alone? Who can do that? And the correct answer is no one. No one can do that except for God alone. But they're seeing this man claim that he has the power and the ability to do what only God can do. So the crux of this scandal that starts to develop here, and we're going to see it week after week for the next five weeks, eventually ending in Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion. The scandal is that Jesus is claiming to do something that only God can do. Right here on my Bible page, 123, Jesus is claiming to be God. There's some folk who think that Jesus never actually claimed to be God. Man, it's happening right here. He's claiming to be and to do the very things that only God can do. According to the Jewish tradition and the Jewish law, the Jewish rule, the only acceptable judgment for someone who claims to be God is death. And so from this point forward, we see this scandal continue to develop where the religious, the ones who think they got it all figured out, are marching towards the crucifixion. But what if Jesus wasn't a blasphemous heretic? What if Jesus wasn't a blasphemous heretic? What if he actually was and is God? So verse 8, here's what happens. Check this out. Immediately, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. And he says to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to take, uh, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, take up your bed, rise and walk? Ricky, can you raise the screen here for us? Appreciate it. Um, To rise and walk. And so Jesus knows the thoughts of these scribes. They didn't speak the judgment against Jesus, they didn't say it aloud, they thought it. In their hearts, they questioned his authority. They questioned him in their hearts. I, I don't know about you, but if a guy in front of me who I'm thinking is a blasphemous heretic asks me why I think he's a blasphemous heretic without me saying that I think he's a blasphemous heretic, if that happened, like, it would kind of freeze me in my tracks. Like, I didn't say it. I was just thinking it, and then he calls me out on it. Like, that, that, that would be a little bit, like, Crazy. Just by Jesus speaking, what the scribes were thinking should have put to rest the question of whether or not Jesus is God. Whether this man that stands before him actually is God that can forgive sins. But to provide greater evidence, to provide greater proof that he is God, to bring greater glory to the name of God, to bring greater clarification to his authority and to his mission, Jesus raises the question in verse 9 that we just read. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic your sins are forgiven or to say to him, rise, take up your bed and walk? Obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because that's something that can't be proven from the outside. And so Jesus is saying, okay, since I'm claiming that I can do something on the inside that you cannot see, I will do something on the outside that you can see. And both of these things are things that only God can do. Because only God can work outside of the scope and the laws of nature. Only God can take limbs that have been paralyzed, that are lame, and stretch them to the point where they can now walk. That's something only God can do. Likewise, only God can forgive the sins of one's life. And so Jesus says, since you can't see what I just did, what just happened with this guy, I'll show you something that you can see. But that you may know, verse 10, that the Son of Man, talking about himself, has the authority on earth to forgive sins so that you can know it, so that I can prove this to you. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, stand up, pick up your bed, and go home. In other words, so that you can know that I that so that you know that I can do only what God can do inside. I'll do something that only God can do on the outside. So this is further evidence to me that this isn't some kind of surprise like visit by some people who just kind of opened up a roof and they descend this guy into Jesus's lap. When I, mean, I see this as an illustration that a divine illustration organized by a sovereign God to drop a sinful man in front of Jesus for Jesus to stand and declare who he is. So often in our lives we get these things dropped in our laps and we're like man what's this all about? Is God for me or is he against me? And so Jesus is healing this man to demonstrate his deity And his glory. He's not healing this man because the man really, 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 really wanted it. He's not doing it because the man really, really, really was worthy of it. He was doing this to demonstrate his own authority and that equality with God was not something that Jesus had to reach out for, but that Jesus was and still is God. It's almost like saying, like Jesus is saying, only God can forgive sin. Only God can raise the cripple, this outcast of society. Only God can lift him up off of his bed. So to prove that I can do what you can't see, I'll do what you can see. And man, the scandal... It's even more scandalous. So this man, this Jesus, claims to be God. The scribes in their heart, they think he's a blasphemous heretic. Jesus calls them out for their thoughts. Not for their words, but for their thoughts. And without them even speaking, Jesus ups the ante by saying, okay, I'll prove to you what I can do what you can't see by doing what you can't see. And both of these things are things that only God could do. So what happens? How does this thing end? Verse 12, he rose, the the crippled man, the paralytic, he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God saying, man, we have never, never seen anything like this. We have never seen anything like this happen before. Man, this blew their minds. They had never seen anything like this. They were amazed and they glorified God. And it says they all were amazed. I, I, that seems to include even the scribes. Man, they were shut up. They, they, what can you say to that? First of all, what can you say to a guy who even can read your thoughts? Okay. But what can you say to a guy who can read your thoughts and then tell a crippled who everybody knows in Capernaum is a crippled to get up and he walks out. These, these friends, they lower this crippled man down the roof and he walks out of the house. And they're amazed. It shut their mouth. The only thing they could say is, man, we've never seen this before. Now, we shouldn't think that these people, this whole group, including the scribes, we shouldn't think that this caused their faith to ignite and for their conversion to take place. Because we'll see next week, as Richard teaches next week, that these scribes are actually following behind Jesus, kind of spying on him, looking like, what is he doing? Where else can we trap him? So just because people are awestruck at the Glory of God, that doesn't mean that there's conversion that takes place. This paralytic was not some unforeseen, undivinely orchestrated surprise that was dropped into Jesus' lap. There was a sovereign purpose. It was for Jesus to be seen as God and for people to be amazed with God and to glorify God. So as we look in our own lives, as we led with what what do we do with these things that suddenly get dropped in our lap? Again, when it's things that are amazing and things that are fun, things that make sense, man, it's really easy. It's really good. It's really fun. But what about the things that get dropped in our lap that, that we didn't see coming and are tough and are difficult? Can we see the bigger purpose of God in those situations as well? Or is God out to lunch and he doesn't know what's getting dropped into your lap? What kind of God do we serve? A God who is sovereign and in control and is for us and is with us and uses these things to mold us into the likeness that he desires for him to be glorified through? Or do we serve a God who is clueless and has no idea what's sitting in your lap? And listen, guys, I believe we serve a God who is sovereign? Who is in control over all things? A lot of times at Life Journey Church, you're going to hear us talk about our shape, S H A P E, and that stands for the that, that, that signifies this idea that God is shaping us, continuously shaping us to serve Him in this community, in this thing of the church. S stands for our spiritual gifts. We talked about this in our Covenant Family Weekend, and there are that God gives every believer a spiritual gift. For them to use in the body. H stands for heart. What you love to do. What you just love to do. God has given you that ambition. That desire to glorify his name through that. Uh, S-H-A. A A is for abilities. What you're good at. What are you naturally really good at? We should use those things. It's a gift from God. Craig's an excellent guitar player. So is heart. So they're up here serving with their skills every single week. P, personality. And some people are super outgoing. Some people are kind of inward. I mean, God uses all of us. Phil was talking about how he's a little socially awkward, but, man, God uses Phil. He really does, I promise, uh, to reach people for his glory. But here's the one I kind of want us to focus on is E S H A P E E experiences, those things that get dropped in our lap, those things that we did not anticipate coming, those things that we could never have foreseen and perhaps the things that we never would have wanted dropped in our lap. But I see a God so glorious and so loving that he graciously sees these things in our lap to make us and to mold us and to shape us into whom he desires for us to be. But sometimes it's hard for us to see that. Sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the goodness of God when those things hurt, when those things suffer. Think about the early Christians in Rome as they're sitting there around candlelight reading this, that this man's dropped in Jesus' lap and and it's for the glory of Jesus being exalted and for God to be magnified and God to be glorified. Think about them when they're thinking, what, what about the things that get dropped in our laps they're thinking about their neighbors. They're thinking about their friends, their family members who are covered in animal skins and fed to wild beasts. How is that good? Paul sums it up beautifully in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. He says, for me to live is Christ. That means I'm going to preach Christ. I'm going to live Christ. I'm going to live in the reality of this new man that has been birthed in me at my conversion. For me to live is Christ. But to die, (laughs) it's even better because I'm with God forever. Listen, guys, church, family, friends, we serve a God who is bigger than we could ever imagine. And so we have the opportunity as we walk through this little mini-series where Jesus is trumping, he's turning on its head this idea of, of working for your salvation versus the grace that he offers. We have the opportunity to realize that nothing gets dropped in our laps. Nothing gets dropped on us that is not for our good and for God's glory. The things that I've walked through, the things that April have walked through, man, at the time, how? where's the good in this? But now we can see the goodness of God. We can see how He was so faithful through it. So this is how we're going to end this morning. We're going to take some time, we're going to create some space for us just to to spend some time just praying. Craig's going to come on up and start leading us in a time of music. And as, as that happens, as, as we have this time to respond, I just want, to, I, I just want us to, to just get honest with God and say, God, I, I don't know what to do with this, whatever this is, whatever this thing has been dropped in your lap. Like, I don't know really what to do with this, but God, I give it to you. I yield to your sovereign control over my life. I yield to you I lay this down before you at the foot of the cross, and I believe that nothing is dropped in my lap that's not ultimately for my good and for your glory. That can be tough. That can be difficult. Some of you have walked through some very tough and are walking through some very tough times. But listen, God never drops something on our laps that's surprising to him. He is sovereign. We can rest in that. Maybe this morning you're struggling with even your faith in Jesus, with your trust in who he is, that he can really save you, that he really loves you. Can I just invite you to talk with us? Can I invite you to talk with Richard or myself or Tyler or another community group leader about this thing of Jesus? We're just going to have an opportunity for you just to, to be silent to confess, to agree to God that that there are things that are dropped on us that we don't understand, but he does. And his sovereign will and his sovereign ability has the desire for that to be good. Father, I just pray over your people. I pray, God, that as we walk through this life and we see these things being dropped in us, things that a lot of times are easy and fun and good, but things sometimes are just hard. And we struggle with realizing that this is for our good and for your glory. God, in this room, I think of diseases, diabetes. I think of, of sicknesses. I think of job losses. I think of, of, of custodial issues. I think of, of, of all sorts of things right here in this room. But God, I just pray that we would see the bigger picture that you bring things by your grace into our lives for you to be glorified and for us ultimately to be good. So God, I thank you.